Today's episode is brought to you by Jane Quo's new novel, Land of Broken Promises. Inspired by Quo's own childhood as an undocumented Taiwanese immigrant in 1980s Los Angeles, Land of Broken Promises defies easy categorization. A novel written in verse and an historical novel that reads like a memoir. Quo's latest stands out among recent books that explore childhood experiences of being undocumented in that it was written for children. And yet, although it is marketed to a young readership because of its 11-year-old protagonist, Anna, Land of Broken Promises is truly a book meant for adults and children alike, for lovers of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Really, for anyone of any age who has ever asked the question, did I have a happy childhood? Land of Broken Promises is out on June 6th and makes a great companion with her debut novel, In Verse, In the Beautiful Country, which Jean Nguyen Yang has called vivid, heartbreaking, and hopeful in all the right ways. Both are published by Quiltree, an imprint of HarperCollins, and available for pre-order now. I have a bit of a story to share before today's episode, one that I think will be interesting in its own right, but will ultimately provide some context for today's conversation and add some interesting subtext to both what happens in this episode and why. So if you don't immediately know where I'm going with this, I ask you to trust me in what might at first seem like I'm meandering, that I'll ultimately get us there. So generally speaking, I'm not someone who naturally seeks to be part of public events. I much prefer to be in one-on-one conversations with a guest, alone together in the recording studio, or now, since the pandemic, alone together in the Zoom room. And I much prefer to be in conversation than to give a presentation. For example, every so often I get asked to give a presentation before an audience about podcasting or about interviewing. And I always ask if it's possible to be interviewed myself instead. And if it is, I usually do it. Print interviews are a whole other story where I don't have to overcome anything. And it was actually in a print interview some years ago now where I mentioned when someone asked me to dream big about Between the Covers. I mentioned Michael Silverblatt, the host of Bookworm at KCRW, where due to a unique relationship with the Lannan Foundation, he has not a side project, but a life, a profession of reading and talking to writers, and how wonderful that seemed, and how aspirational it seemed to think of having a life like that. Next thing I know, I have a message on my answering machine. Yes, I still have an answering machine. Uh, And this answering machine message uh, is from Michael Silverblatt himself, a message I have saved to this day. I called him back to soon discover he wanted to offer advice on how to further establish the show. That and also to share anecdotes from his time as an interviewer. I did very little talking, which was all right by me, as he had stories about so many iconic writers he had talked to over the decades, whether Sontag or Vonnegut or Berger. I think I had started a sauce on the stove, 
that needed a long time to cook, to cook down before I called him. But after an hour of our conversation, I had to excuse myself to briefly turn off the burner and then return for more. I learned a lot about Silverblatt's own story of becoming the host of Bookworm as his profession, as his job, which was fascinating in its own right, but by his own admission was mainly peculiar to his own situation, mainly not transferable to others. But one thing that really stuck with me was his insistence that I should do public events and do more public events. I already had done some at Powell's, but not long after this exchange, I was asked if I would be the interlocutor for Richard Powers at an onstage ticketed event at an auditorium called Revolution Hall. It seats around 850 people. In addition to the radio interview that we already were planning to do earlier that day, thinking of Michael Silverblatt, I said yes. And then as if something weirdly cosmic was happening, as if somehow all of these things were connected by some hidden fabric, some hidden sense of unity, I was also asked if I would do the same. That same week I was asked uh, with Zadie Smith the night before, a ticketed event again at Revolution Hall. And again, I said yes, with the condition if she would come into the studio for an interview for the podcast that afternoon as well. So to be clear, I I had never been invited to do events of this profile before this. And all of a sudden I was doing two back-to-back, one day to the next. And really, because of the podcast, I was doing four interviews, back-to-back-to-back-to-back, two with each writer in two days. These happened in October of 2019. And I've wanted ever since to share them Because, by design, I aimed for each of the two interviews with Richard Powers and each of the two with Zadie Smith to be entirely different, even though they were about the same book. I prepared two entirely different lines of inquiry. I remember that after our two hours together at the radio station that afternoon, Richard expressed concern regarding the question of spontaneity and authenticity about us having a second conversation the same day. And I reassured him the game plan was for something entirely new and different. And I think you'll agree. In fact, I'm sure you will agree if you have listened to our podcast conversation and now this live conversation that same night, how amazingly different they are. By design on my part, yes, but also shaped by the difference in form and context of these two encounters. So while Zadie Smith, as a policy, doesn't allow recordings of her public events to be made public after the fact, unfortunately, we are ultimately able to share this remarkable public event with Richard Powers. So I want to say thank you to him, to W.W. Norton, and to Powell's for making this possible. I should also mention something about my voice in this conversation. In the decade before these, these two high-profile conversations and the years since this conversation happened, I have never been more deathly ill than I was during those two days. The upside of this, having to marshal half my energy on stage, trying to, and fortunately succeeding, not to cough, 
along with the bright lights that make the audience largely invisible from the stage. Both of these things actually helped my nerves. Nevertheless, given that my voice in the podcast conversation sounds relatively normal, I was surprised returning to this evening's audio to find that I sound, at times, like a cross between the Cookie Monster and a 90-year-old man with a lifelong two-pack-a-day cigarette habit that continues unabated even today. This long preamble may mostly be of interest to longtime listeners to the show, those who are partly here because of the show itself. But I say all of this partly also to set up the context for the event itself that you're about to hear. And the rest of what I will share now will be of particular interest to fans of Richard Powers, to lovers of the overstory, and to those who want an extra layer of nuance to what you're about to hear. Richard Powers' hardcover and paperback tours for the overstory didn't come through Oregon. So there was a lot of built-up anticipation, not just because of his stature as a writer, but certainly because of this, and not just because the overstory had now won the Pulitzer Prize in fiction, but because the book itself was deeply and intimately connected to Oregon and its histories of forest defense. I say this because right before Richard arrives in Oregon, we both receive a charged and somewhat confrontational, if not adversarial, email from some local forest activists who felt disturbed by how things were portrayed in the book. And this is understandable insofar as through the 90s, forest defense was very visible within Portland, very public-facing and woven into the activism and culture of this place where you could walk by storefronts for various groups like the Cascadia Forest Alliance where you could bring food or supplies to be brought out to those living high in the tree canopy defending remaining stands of old-growth forest. But with the invention of eco-terrorism laws, with punishments for property destruction that rivaled and exceeded punishments you would expect for mass murderers, where in the new reality, where a Portlander who turns off a valve on an oil pipeline can face 30 years in prison as a result, this decimated local and regional activist groups. In the supporter email, I will share a link to a great New York Times Magazine article from last year called The Rise and Fall of America's Environmentalist Underground, which both shows what happened, how the ideas of some of these underground groups 30 years ago were so prescient, and touches upon how now people again, despite the consequences, are flirting with radical ideas in this regard. So these activists who were involved and or knew people who were in some of these landmark actions of resistance decades ago, who witnessed the collapse of long-sustained networks, were unnerved to recognize events or people within the overstory. Events or people sort of, but changed. It didn't happen in the book the way it happened in the world. And I was eager to process this with Richard. I didn't know what he, was, what he thought about it. We hadn't talked about it. 
So when I showed up at the radio station that afternoon, I helped to unpack how his book isn't a straightforward historical fiction, but sort of sits in a space between historical fiction and fable or historical fiction and allegory. But when we met for the first time, I quickly discovered he had already had a long breakfast with these activists. And later, when we were at the auditorium, he invited them back to the green room so we could coordinate their organizing, how they were going to try to stop a timber sale of mature and old-growth forest on Mount Hood into the event Richard and I were about to do. For me, spending most of that day and evening with Richard on an interpersonal level was truly pure delight. There's something very genuine and attentive and open in him that seemed remarkable to me. But perhaps what was most magical was the alchemy, this attentiveness and care from Richard created in transforming what could have been something tense and defensive into something of connection, of starting new connections, new networks, of reviving old ones, of coming together on behalf of the trees. So when you hear him talk to the audience at Revolution Hall, about Portland's proprietary relationship to the book, the way the book is received here differently than nearly anywhere else, the subtext is this, that that fictionalized activist community in the overstory, inspired by real people and real actions, but reshaped and configured into something related to history, but living more in the realm of story, well, The real activist community was part of our day together, from breakfast until we said goodnight. And as it should be, I think. This is probably the longest intro for an episode that I've ever had, but for good reason. There is so much history to what made this event happen. After you listen, if you haven't heard the podcast episode with Richard Powers, or really, even if you have, it's it's worth listening to again as or for the first time, as they speak in truly different voices. And there are lots of other episodes in the archives that are deeply related to environmental concerns, whether the conversation with Jeff Vandermeer, or Ursula K. Le Guin, or Forrest Gander, or Kim Stanley Robinson, or Jory Graham. Lastly, when Richard was on the show, he contributed an incredibly moving reading of a W.S. Merwin poem about trees to the Bonus Audio Archive. The Bonus Audio Archive is one of many possible benefits of joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. There are many, many others, from rare collectibles to early readership subscriptions and more. And you can check it all out at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's episode with none other than Richard Powers. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. 
had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition, was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Hello, I'm Jill Owens-Lee, Marketing Manager for Powell's Books. On behalf of Powell's and our more than 500 employees, I would like to welcome you to this evening's program. Since our flagship store opened in 1971, Powell's has gone from hosting a few events a year to hosting authors at our stores nearly every day. Last year, over 34,000 of you attended an event held at a Powell's store or at a theater like Revolution Hall. As we head towards our 50th anniversary celebrating our independent, family-owned bookstore, we look forward to continuing to host your favorite authors and introducing you to new ones. Thank you for your support. <laughs> I've been with Powell's for almost 19 years, and in that time, I've interviewed hundreds of authors for our website, powells.com. I've had the great honor of interviewing Richard Powers twice, once in 2006 for The Echo Maker, and once in 2014 for Orfeo. Powers is unique amongst the authors I've interviewed because he required almost no editing. He spoke in whole, perfect paragraphs <laughs> made up of complex, thoughtful, beautifully composed sentences. It's been one of the highlights of my career to have been able to participate in those insightful, meaningful conversations with such an extraordinary author. So I'm very happy that tonight, you all get to hear and take part in a conversation with him too. Powers is the author of 12 novels. His most recent, The Overstory, was awarded the 2019 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. He is also the... <laughs> He is also the recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship and the National Book Award, and has been a four-time National Book Critics Circle Award finalist. Powers is joined in conversation this evening by David Naiman. Naiman is host of the literary radio show and podcast Between the Covers and co-author of Ursula K. Le Guin, Conversations on Writing. His short prose has been reprinted in the Pushcart Prize Anthology and the Best Small Fictions and cited in Best American Essays and Best American Travel Writing. Full episodes of Between the Covers can be found at the Tin House Archives at tinhouse.com slash podcasts. Following the presentation, there will be time for a Q&A. If you'd like to ask Richard a question, and I encourage you all to do so, um, please take a moment to fill out the question card you received when you entered the venue. Once completed, please pass them to the aisle where an usher will be by shortly to pick them up. Portland, please join me in welcoming Richard Powers and David Naiman to the stage. Hi, Richard. Hello, David. Hello, Portland. <laughs> so I'm so excited to be part of welcoming you to Oregon, back to the West Coast. But I thought we'd start with when you first went to the West Coast to teach at Stanford, and how something that happened there, perhaps similar in some respects to 
your encounter with birds for the Echo Maker, mm -hmm. something happened with the juxtaposition of, of two very different worlds that led to the beginning of figuring out how to tell the story of the overstory. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's my road to Damascus moment. I, I've, uh, I've told the story a couple of times, and uh, I don't know, you know, to make it fresh, I might have to lie or add additional details or something tonight, but I'm a Midwesterner. I, I did spend some time in Asia as a child, and I live, I've lived on the east coast of the States, and I've lived in northern Europe. But I'm a Midwesterner. You know, I was born in Chicago, grew up in northern Illinois, came back to Illinois after, after I lived in Bangkok. And, and then I taught for many, many years in downstate Illinois, and a lot of the books are set there. And when I retired from Illinois and took a job at Stanford, it was, it was a real uh, reset for me, uh, the, the, the profound difference in place. And among the most profound was just the difference in flora. Uh, I have to confess that I, I did get to a pretty advanced age without paying a lot of attention to green things other than, you know, vague aesthetic pleasure in them. Um, but I, you know, I I could not tell an elm from an ash, and and uh, even even though I, I, I think we internalize place, we we get a sense of what's what, what's native to where we are, where we grow up, and and to move to California was a, was a delightfully deranging thing for me. But even more deranging was to move to Silicon Valley. I mean, to, to, to be in Palo Alto, I mean, you know, a lot of you will have some experience. It's a, it's a profoundly strange place. And, and Stanford is a strange institution and with, with a strange history. Uh, but as you know, Silicon Valley is there because of Stanford's railroad and Stanford's university. And it became a kind of seed for this, this place that, that built the present. I mean, from my house in Palo Alto, you know, on a bike in, in just a few minutes, I could be at the headquarters of Intel, Google, Apple, HP, Facebook, Netflix, you know, you name it, and, and, and they're there. And, and they're, they're not only um, Shoring up the present, but they're they're guaranteeing of a, a future. You know, there's a there's a ethos there. There's a culture there that's pretty extraordinary. And as we were talking this afternoon, um, one of the wild things about the culture of of Silicon Valley is how pervasive this idea that technology was is going to solve all things, including death. Right? If we could just hang on for a little while longer. Uh, that 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 we're going to get this flaw, this bio, the flaw in biological design solved, yeah. and I, you know it sounds odd, but there are a lot of people, you know, who who sign on to that with some degree of fervor. Uh, what saves what saved me, I think, from the intensity of that particular future was being able to go up into the past. Namely, the Santa Cruz Mountains on the other on the other side of the valley and toward the ocean, um, and up there, 
the mountains, I mean, there, there are different biomes, but a, one of the prominent ones is, is a regrowing redwood forest. As I say, I, I, I went out there a tree illiterate. Stanford is an astonishing place to get your first glimpse of, of just what trees can do. I and mean, the campus itself is kind of an arboretum. But to go up into, into those forests, and, uh, you know, if, if, you have, if you have walked under redwoods, you know it's not an exaggeration to say it's a religious thing. I mean, it's, a, it's like being in a cathedral. What I didn't know when I was first hiking up in the Santa Cruz Mountains is that those forests are very young. I mean, they had been cut down all up and down the Central Peninsula to build San Francisco, to, to, to lay the, the, the tracks of, of Stanford's railroad, uh, you know, to, to, to build the, the initial infrastructure of the valley. I was walking under these trees and thinking, what a glorious tree. You know, what, what, a, what an astonishing thing a redwood is. Those trees are 90 years old, you know, or 100 years old. They're youngsters. And it, I, I was up there one day and came across an escapee. You know, for, for whatever reason, an individual redwood that hadn't been cut when those mountains were taken down. And if you think a redwood can do a lot in 100 years... Give it 1,500, you know, as, as this tree uh, had been given. And, and to, to stand in front of a single creature that's doing the math here, 20-some 20, 20 feet wide, uh, as, as tall as a, as a football field is long, and, you know, older than Charlemagne, you know, Getting, getting on to Jesus, you know, in terms of age. You don't have to be a particularly sensitive soul to say, I've, I've kind of missed what life is capable of doing. You know, it's, a, it's a big knock in the side of the head. And, and, and what happened to me in that moment, there were several, there was kind of cascade of realizations. I mean, one, one is that these mountains must have been covered in trees that size throughout that range. You know, and I later looked at the, at the full range map of the Redwood Forest, and they, they go from southern Oregon down to Monterey. And there must have been many trees that size all up and down that range. So that was realization number one. And then the two was, you know, Silicon Valley was down there because these trees were up here. And I didn't get that part of the story. You know, and in fact, I'd spent 30 some years writing novels about technology and the, the, the way in which our, our, our various uh, pursuits have changed who we are and what we're capable of doing, the story that we're telling about ourselves. And I never once brought these these people on as uh, these creatures on as as central protagonists. You know, they they were like, like any good colonial enterprise. You know, we don't say who's doing the heavy lifting, right? So that that was eye opening to me. And then to come down off out of those mountains with a new appreciation of of the time frame and the and the physical scale of 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 what 
these trees were doing. And to suddenly be aware of the, the, the paint uh, marks on the, the, the bowls of these, these bigger remaining pockets of, of trees in that area. And, and, and to, to have that little light bulb go up, that means cut these ones. And, that, and, those, and those paint spots had been put on very recently. I mean, within 15, 15 years of when I was seeing them. And why weren't they cut? And then all of a sudden, for me, there was the drama. There was the first proximal drama for the book. While I wasn't paying attention, other people were saying 98% of the redwood forests is enough. Let's save the last 2%. So that's where the book actually started, in, in, the, in that visceral evidence that there was an incredible drama going on, one that had a big bearing on who we are and how we got here, what we're capable of doing, and one that, that was simply not on my radar. Well, there are a lot of ways that you not only invite trees into the story, but sort of reshape story in accordance with trees. Yeah. So we have the superstructure of the book, which sort of conforms to the anatomy and the life cycle of a tree. Right. We have the nine human protagonists with uh, nine tree avatars, or perhaps nine trees with human avatars. Right. But perhaps the, the biggest thing is this question of, can we tell different stories where humans aren't centering themselves and how to do that? Yeah. And can those stories then become new technologies to change our behavior yeah. in regards to otherness? Yeah. And I was hoping maybe you could speak to that a little bit mm -hmm. about how, how to decenter the human and yet keep human interest. Yeah. Well, you know, once, once the scales fell off of my eyes. Everything was different. So when I left California and came back to the Midwest, you know, it, it wasn't just about these, you know, behemoths. It wasn't just about these gargantuan Methuselahs. It was about every tree that in every region of the country that was contributing to not only local identity, but the, the economic liftoff of this continent. You know, the, the four great forests of North America, each of which was supposed to be forever inexhaustible, and each of which was exhausted very rapidly. So, you know, there, there's, once you start seeing that, then it's no longer possible to see the human drama that we tell ourselves, the history of, of people on this continent, both before the, the arrival of the Europeans and after the arrival of the Europeans. It's no longer to see them as, as, a, as a story independent of this enormous principle that was spent to bring about that history, nor is it possible to see nature anymore as something that's autonomous or, or, or unshaped, you know, virginal or untouched, uh, independent of, of the actions of humans. So, so it's really, I mean, what, what you were getting at, I think it was a slow education for me. I mean, it unfolded over, you know, the book took five and a half years to make, and I think my education is still going on. 
in fact, was continued pretty dramatically this morning when I was able to sit down with uh, Oregonians who were bringing me up to date on what's happening here these days. But to, to your point, um, to begin to see the, the human story and the more than human story is inseparable was you know, the initiation of the challenge to find a literary form that would make human and non-human protagonists commensurable or somehow uh, commensal inside an artistic form uh, where uh, they, were, they each had a kind of agency and a, a power to organize and propel narrative that was both independent and interdependent. Uh, and, and it was, it, it, the, the, for me, the journey of the book was the journey away from commodity to community. It is the, this, the discovery of our absolute dependency on creatures who we have somehow externalized from our own story and to, and to try to find a way of bringing them back into our narrative. And, you know, it, it, it bears saying that this is not something new. It was new for me. It wasn't, it, I, I had no literary, contemporary literary fiction to look to for how to do it. But as I got deeper into my reading, it, you know, it was like recovering my own childhood, the realization that this would not have been a revolutionary thing or an innovative thing or in any way a remarkable thing for most of human storytelling in most places of the globe for most of human history. This is, this, this is indigenous knowledge that you can't tell our story without bringing on the non-human as a central essential component in organizing principle of our story. Well, you, you've written a lot about cognitive science in a variety of your novels. You have a character in the overstory, Adam, who brings in some of this knowledge, which m may point to ways in which we're biologically wired that make it challenging to return to uh, a storytelling of uh, otherness being centered. Mm -hmm. And I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the neurology in relationship to narrative and, and storytelling. Yeah. Not, not to be you know, too pedantic, but I'm a little shy of saying biologically wired. But I, I, um, while I was at Stanford, I really fell under the spell of Daniel Kahneman's book. A lot of you will have read it too, Thinking Fast and Slow. And this, this magisterial... Um, encyclopedia of, of bias, blindness, the affordances of consciousness uh, that when put together uh, in, in a kind of catalog reveal how, how very wrong we are about thinking what, we, you know, what, what we're capable of doing and how we do it and how effectively we do it. Um, and you know, in a lot of ways, many of the 
biases and blindnesses that, that Kahneman catalogs have to do with trying to stabilize a narrative about ourselves as autonomous and as capable and as kind of self-reliant uh, in our ability to understand and respond to, to the challenges of the environment. So a lot of things like confirmation blindness, uh, bystander effect, they all, in, in an odd way, they have this common genealogy of, of saying, I'm okay. And, and my narrative is comprehensive enough to hold at bay all the complications and challenges of, of you know, the not me. And, and it's this perpetual desire to, to say, I am sufficient to, you know, to the overwhelming challenges of, of you know, the, the, the unpredictable world beyond me that I think underwrite a lot of these biases. Um, but I, you know, I, I would still say, even if, if we've identified that, uh, that consciousness has those affordances and that we, you know, we can often fall into, into those, you know, those easy ways of evaluating, uh, uh, simplifying and making it possible to navigate those complexities. It's, it's actually culture that either corroborates or resists those, uh, those tendencies. And it's not cognitive biases per se that have put us in this place, this place where you know, the, the meteor is coming and, you know, you remember this little clip from, uh, uh, the Roadrunner cartoon, uh, when the, I, and I can't even remember the setup, but the coyote's in a shack and he's preparing something, you know, some ultimate trap for the Roadrunner. And, and he, he doesn't know that the Roadrunner has pushed the, the, the shack out onto the railroad tracks. <laughs> And, and he hears something coming, and, and it gets louder and louder. He looks out the window, and it's a train coming right for the shack. And he reaches up, and he pulls the window shade down. <laughs> that may be cognitive bias, but it, my feeling is it's culture, right? That we've actually committed wholesale, collectively, to this notion that somehow we are masters we are in control, we are autonomous, we are separate, it's going to be okay. Right? That's, that is the narrative that my narrative wants to disrupt and disturb. Right? Well, earlier when we were talking at the radio station, you had described the overstory as being a, a juxtaposition or a braiding of historical realism and fable. Yeah. And coming over here from there, I was thinking about how the more that we've paid attention scientifically to otherness, and particularly to trees, the more we've, we're discovering things that are real that seem fantastical yeah. about trees. Yeah. That some of the things that we now know about trees, maybe 20 years ago, would seem like fables. That's right. So I was hoping maybe we could talk a little bit about some of that. Um, yeah. That trees migrate, that trees have memory, that trees share across species or across kingdoms. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about some of the tree science that informs some of the characters in, in the overstory. 
This, this now I think is, is penetrating in a pretty broad way into, into, into general familiarity, but it's, it's, it's still astonishing and it's still new and it's still, there's, we're just scratching the surface of, of what these creatures do. Uh, but yeah, if you would, if you had told not only the average person, but the average dendrologist, 50 or 60 years ago, that trees sh share an immune system, that they signal each other over the air about, uh, you know, uh, compromise and, and invasion, that they, that they tr trade, uh, sugars and hydrocarbons and secondary metabolites underground through fungal intermediaries, that a, that a Douglas fir and a birch might be in some kind of, uh, uh, resource sharing configuration through mycorrhizal fungal, fungus. Those, yeah, those would seem pretty bizarre. They would seem like indigenous knowledge, right? Um, and it, it took a lot of brave researchers, a lot of effort to stand down consensual wisdom and say, here's the data set. You know, uh, yeah, it's going to take some explaining, you know. <laughs> but, you know, that's... That is also science. I mean, you know, the, this, the, 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 the core of radical skepticism is don't, you know, don't be satisfied with what you think is out there. You know, when you stand in front of something, you have to make that empirical measurement. You, you can't use consensual wisdom and category, you know, to, to tell you what's happening. You, you have to describe the tree that's there, not the one that you think is there. I mean, it's really interesting, too, how, how, how those kinds of um, mental processes can blind us to the obvious, because people were seeing... So, so, so you all know, right, that, um, that, that, that fungus, the, the, the fungal threads my, mycelia go actually into the tree roots, and they 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 can even penetrate the cell walls of of cells in the roots, and set up this this mutualism where you know where the the, the trees are supplying the fungus with sugars that the fungus can't create because fung, fung, fungi don't photosynthesize, and fungus can be you know uh, doing really strange things like like capturing invertebrates with little lassos you know so springtails go into these these loops and the loops contract and the and the fungus will digest the the, the springtail and then send those those metabolites to the trees I and mean, that's some strange stuff but the, the 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 fact is nothing prevented people you know, 200 years ago, from looking and seeing that that there there is this relationship, and in fact, people did, but they were so blinded by the categorical belief that somehow the only relationship between fungus and plants is pathological. That you know, the the, the consensual wisdom said, if there's if there's something going on between these two organisms, it's to the absolute detriment of the plant, right? So it's astonishing that that. The, the, the evidence could be so visible and so present for so long before somebody said, hey, actually, let's, let's not use the category to interpret what we're looking at. Let's use what we're looking at to revise the category. Yeah. Right. 
Maybe this is a good time to introduce us to Patricia. Good. The dendrologist who was yeah. working in the forests yeah. outside of Corvallis. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. But you know, it's, we, sh- we should actually, I should say this. It's so interesting to talk about the book in Portland because this place is, I mean, you all have a proprietary relationship to the story that I told. That I mean, I can... I've talked about this book all over the states and in, in different countries, but it's like I come here and I'll get nervous because it's like <laughs> this is where it, it kind of came down. The, core, the heart and soul of the story is is in this area. Um, so so yeah, um, the the Andrews Research Forest that that Corvallis runs. Uh, a, a lot of the work that was being done there was deeply inspiring to the book. Uh, and then a lot of a, a lot of the other research having to do both with over-the-air communication and and subterranean resource sharing was also refined or originated in the in the Northwest. Um, Patricia becomes she's kind of the linchpin of the story, and she becomes a composite uh, of a lot of research that 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 has been happening over the last several decades. Uh, people who who did break paradigms and 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 who did um, challenge consensual wisdom. In her case, it's established uh, when she's when she's a girl, she has a hearing impairment, and as will happen uh, sometimes with with people whose 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 hearing is uh, reduced. Uh, she she has trouble learning to speak, and her speech is difficult for others to understand. And it it alienates her from from the kids her age. Uh, they they other her, and they 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 uh, treat her as something kind of monstrous. And it it creates a a, a real uh, Barrier for her between her and her peers. Uh, she's lucky to have a, a father who's deeply committed to her, and he's a, an agricultural extension agent. Takes her under his wing and starts to to bring her along on a lot of his jobs and teaches her about plants. And suddenly, here's a world that she doesn't have to rely primarily on her hearing to understand. Or, or her speech to communicate with. So she, she has an affinity for the community of plants that make them more understandable to her than, than her schoolmates. She can't understand why her schoolmates are una- unable to tell the difference between a, a mocker nut and a bitter nut hickory. You know, what's wrong with them? You know, um, so, uh, because of that predilection, she goes on to, to, to study trees in school. And because she starts with that very direct uh, field intelligence, she is in a position to pay attention to the possibility of over-the-air signaling in a way that the male-dominated gatekeepers of her field are not, uh, and she she does publish this research, and she does suffer severely at the hands of these of these gatekeepers, and you know this is this is a story uh, that that uh, 
women researchers in in every field, you know, uh, uh, suffer again and again. Um, but it's such a traumatic experience for her that she drops out of the discipline, and she she goes underground for a while, and and she works a series of odd jobs. She works her way west. Um, and uh, she starts another life. And I, I thought that I would read a little passage about when she finally gets out here, which is a, a, a kind of, has, has been a goal for her for a long time. And this is just a, a, a very short, uh, uh, lyrical um, appreciation for her arrival here in, in the Northwest. In 1981, Patricia heads northwest. Giants still grow in pockets of old growth scattered from northern California up to Washington. She wants to see what uncut forest looks like while there's still some left. The western cascades in a damp September. Nothing prepares her. From mid-distance, without any scale, the trees seem no larger than the biggest tulip poplars back east. But up close, she's lost in measurements opposite. All she can do is laugh and look some more. Hemlock, grand fir, Douglas fir, buttressed monster conifers disappear above her, with burls as big as minivans. Even the runts would dominate any eastern forest. Down in the understory, Patricia's own body seems freakishly small, like one of those acorn people she made in childhood. Clicks and chatter disturb the hush. The air is so twilight green she might be underwater. It rains particles, spore clouds, broken webs and mammal dander, skeletonized mites, bits of insect frass and bird feather. If she holds still, vines will overrun her. She walks deeper in, crunching 10,000 invertebrates with every step, watching for tracks in a place where the indigenous language uses the same word for footprint and understanding. The temperature plummets as she passes through a thermal curtain. She swings her singing stick before her. The canopy is a colander stippling the beetle's warm surfaces. Sword fern, liverworts, lichen, things with leaves as small as sand grains stain every inch of the dank logs. The mosses are thumbnail forests all their own. More bushwhacking reveals the prodigious rot. Creature-riddled bowls crumbling for centuries. Snags, gothic and twisted, silver as inverted icicles. She presses on a fissure of bark, and her fingers sink in. Fecund putrefaction fills her lungs. The sheer mass of ever-dying life, packed into each cubic foot, woven together by fungal filaments and dew-betrayed spiderweb, leaves her woozy. Mushrooms ladder up the sides of trunks, 
Soaked by fog all winter long, spongy green bays she can't name coats every wooden pillar to a height well above her head. The forest pulls her along, past the trunk of an immense western red cedar. Her hand pats the fibrous strips of a trunk whose fluted girth rivals the height of an eastern dogwood. It reeks of incense. The top has sheared off, replaced by a candelabra of boughs promoted to stand in trunks. A grotto opens at ground level in the rotted heartwood, large enough to house whole families of mammals. She addresses the cedar in the phrases of this forest's first humans. Long life maker, I'm here, down here. She feels foolish, but each word is a little easier than the next. Thank you for the baskets and the boxes. Thank you for the capes and hats and skirts. Thank you for the cradles, the beds, the diapers, canoes, paddles, harpoons, and nets, poles, logs, posts, the rock-proof shakes and shingles, the kindling that will always light. Finding no good reason to quit now, she lets the goods spill out. Thank you for the tools, the chests, the decking, the doors and floors, the beams and paneling. I forget. Thank you, she says, following the ancient formula, for all these gifts that you have given. And still not knowing how to stop, she adds, we're sorry. We didn't know how long it takes for you to grow back. Thank you. By the way, um, the, the, that last observation you know, it was a very sobering thing for me to read. I think I came across it first in Joan Maloof's marvelous books, um, that no human being has ever seen the richness and the complexity and the interconnectedness and the species count of an old growth forest come back from a cut forest. Never. And People will speculate, you know, it's 400 years, or it's 500 years, or it's thousands. We don't know. And, and whatever comes back isn't going to be what was there, right? And if, if almost all of it is gone, what could we possibly gain by getting the final few percent? And, and now, having set that context, I have to say that you know this book that, that deals so directly with the, the timber wars of not that long ago, events that, that you all will remember, you know, the, the victories and the defeats, you know, the Warner Creeks and the Headwaters, you know, all of those recent wars and 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 the period that followed where okay, now we know, you know, and it's been a decade now since we've cut old growth. We're cutting old growth again. They're cutting old growth in Mount Hood now. You know? 
I think this is the perfect time to pivot to the way you portray um, eco-activism in the book. I know Naomi Klein is a big champion of the book, particularly because of the way you valorize direct action, civil disobedience, in a way that's pretty rare in contemporary fiction. And I guess I wanted to hear more about your considerations on and process around your portrayal, both of the actions themselves, and then, and then also even the 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 ways the government ended up dismantling yeah. the movement for yeah. a while before recently, where we're seeing a, a resurgence of of interest in right in direct action again. Right. Yeah. So so the book has nine central human characters. And, and probably about half that many main tree characters, individual tree characters. But um, of those nine, about five uh, come together and join the actions in this region from, you know, in, in the, 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 the period under question, you know, the, the, the Timber Wars period. And uh, what's interesting is the book, the book plays so differently here than it does in other parts of the country. I mean, here, you know, the, the proprietary relationship that, uh, that an Oregonian, that a, that a Cascadian might have to this material is, you know, oh, I remember that, but it didn't quite happen that way, or you've combined two events, or you've changed the chronology a little bit, or, you know, uh, this, this thing that happens, this character, you know, or, you know, there are two things that happen to this character, and that actually happened to two different people, you know, so that, that very personal relationship to the events, the, the actual historical events, and there's never any question that, you know, that I'm telling an allegory. And in other parts of the country, it's like, it's, it's, it's like, mythic history you know oh you know you went over the top with that scene where the police are putting the the, the, the pepper spray in the people's eye you know the protesters eyes who are chained down in the in the bear claws you know uh and and i have to reply saying look go on youtube you know and see the clips you know, so because the book straddles that line between historical fiction and allegory, the representation of the actual, you know, the the direct action plays differently, you know, to different people in different parts of the country. Um, but the people who do get drawn up in this, in in my book, are themselves not political by nature prior to some event that radicalizes them. So what I was interested in telling was the story of of you know what it would take for a person who doesn't take the non-human seriously for a good portion of their life to have this kind of conversion that I had and and then to be you know to take the non-human seriously enough to take the human dependence on the non-human seriously enough to put their own bodies on the line and that's why it it's been necessary for me as I as I travel around for the book to tell audience who's, who, who might not know, no, actually, you know, this happened again and again and again, and, and people, you know, the, the people involved in these actions did so with great courage and, and, and great will and, and not a lot of public support in a lot of cases, right? And, and that's why, you know, as we, as we go backwards now, in this moment, under an administration that's more determined than ever 
to return us from any possible vision of community back into one of commodity, that we remember what can be accomplished by direct action and that, you know, that uh, the moment uh, uh, for reviving it has come. Yeah. 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 And, and, and alongside that, alongside the, the politics of direct action, is also the need for another kind of transformation, a broader transformation in consciousness that, that, that realigns meaning from this private, synthetic, self-made thing, right? That we've, it's so deeply assimilated, we don't even realize it's an ideology, we think it's inevitable, you know, we just think, well, that's what meaning is. You know, to this other thing, kinship, empathy, connectivity, community, and the, that, in, that wherever you are, right? Whatever your propensity for, you know, for engagement, we all need to make that transformation. We all need to, to, to see the degree to which we've bought into this idea that we're separate and we're autonomous and, and, it, and we can control and use the rest of the living world as, as our resources. I just, whatever happens to us from this moment forward, whatever the consequences of direct action, whatever its ability to, to deflect the trajectories of, of capitalism, until that shift in consciousness reaches some critical threshold, until we give the sanctity that we give to ourselves, to all of life, we're not gonna make it, right? <laughs> What's interesting is there's a lot of there's a lot of historical evidence that suggests that that revolution happens at a fairly low threshold. You know, they say for uh, you know, I've been reading about extinction rebellion um, movements and and the, you know they, the suggestion is that for social transformation to happen, there's a cascade effect that happens. And I was surprised by how low this threshold is. When you have about 3.5% of the people committed to the, to the revolution happening, it's a small number. But it, it has to be large enough and concerted enough for, for that middle part of the distribution curve to say, oh, well, I see now how history is going. If you, you, know, if you had asked anybody you know, 40 years ago about, uh, about the possibility of you know, the legalization of same-sex marriage in this country, consensual wisdom would have been this, that's not going to happen in my lifetime. And it happened almost from one year to the next. You know, once that little magic threshold was crossed. And, and, and that's why I think, you know, we can, we can do, we can affect a transformation that's very difficult for us to see. In the same way that the researchers trans, transformed consensual wisdom in their discipline, we can, can we can transform this um, you know this sort of uh, demoralization in the face of the impossibility 
of, of moving something so seemingly entrenched. You know the famous Frederick Jameson, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, right? <laughs> but it only requires 3.5% of us to imagine the end of capitalism for it, start, you know, for it to start. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we pivot to a, a question and answer, seems like a good time to mention how people can plug in. So, um, yeah. In fact, you have some some local information. information. Good. So so we were both approached by a new group in in Portland, Forests for Climate Resilience, and they were talking to us about the crystal clear uh, timber sale on Mount Hood that um, the organization Bark is suing to try to stop. It's eleven thousand acres, and three thousand acres of that sale is mature and old growth forest. And this this new group, Forest for Climate Resilience, are having an inaugural public event at the Clinton Street Theater this Saturday at 7 p.m. It's kid-friendly. It's called the Forest Climate Review, and it will include live music, a film, a performance, and art, as well as reports back from the Direct Action Camp on Mount Hood, and the Forest Climate Convergence, which will look at um, what's going on on the continent, as well as other ways you can plug in bioregionally. And that's, again, 7 p.m. Clinton Street Theater. And the contact email is crystalclearlywrong at riseup.net. But if you don't have a pencil or a pen, a Lou from the organization, maybe Lou can stand. I can't see very well from here. But Lou is going to be standing outside of the back right door on the main level as people exit with flyers. So you can find them. You know, the, the, the long history of forest protection and the new radicalization of climate movements are coming together in the most interesting ways. They really are the same story. Uh, and you know, one, one way in which they come together, for those of you who are interested, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a very powerful consortium of people. Uh, the Drawdown, you know about this? Uh, if, you, if, you, if you Google Drawdown, uh, you'll get 80 projects for uh, the, the most powerful uh, carbon sequestration scenarios. And you know, I, I count these up, and it's like over a third of them have trees at the heart of them. So there's a deep connection you know, between, between climate movement and, and forest protection. And for, deforestation it is roughly on par with transportation in terms of emissions. Uh, and I think in Portland, it's actually the biggest. Deforestation is actually the biggest contributor to, to greenhouse gases, right? So, it, yeah. Jeremy, do you want to bring out some questions? Thank you. Holy smokes. We're going to be here all night. I love it. Okay. I'm an ecologist by training. I really enjoyed that you made principles understandable to lay people. How much research on forest ecology did you conduct for the book? 
how historically true are your characters and events? So we've talked a little bit about that. I'm a novelist by training. Actually, not by training. I just tried to figure it out on the fly, and I'm still learning. But yeah, so, so, but this is a really, really crucial question for me. Um, if, if I believe in, in the possibility of fiction to play a role in this transformation that we're talking about, it can't do so in, in ignorance of social fact, historical fact, scientific fact, right? These all have to be part of the equation. So the use of discursive material, of, of empirical material, alongside the myths and legends of the world presents a challenge. You know, how, how do you stabilize the, the reader's contract? How do, you, how do you indicate that actually these sorts of assertions about what trees are doing um, can be verified and repeated and, and uh, observed in a controlled way. You know, and that, that's important for the reader of this book to realize that these, these assertions about the astonishing behavior uh, of trees and the astonishing complexity of ecological um, interdependence is is now has been demonstrated and and stabilized uh, and and it's not good enough just to gesture toward it it has to be it has to it, you have to find ways of dramatizing the actual research uh, and that just takes some time and 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 it it presents unusual challenges to the reader right uh I thought this was a novel, you know. I thought I thought this was a story about people. Well, my my notion is this, you know, we talk about regenerative agriculture, you know, agriculture uh where the practice actually enriches the soil and and uh, uh deepens the, the the capacity of that soil. We talk about regenerative economics, that is economics where you know the, the word you know economics and the word ecology no longer mean two separate things, they mean the same thing. Right? I wanted to start this project of regenerative literature, right? Stories, literary fiction that bring in this revised vision of the world, a world in which this this misunderstanding that living systems were dominated exclusively by competition and in fact uh, you know replace that with the vision where for every act of competition there are multiple acts of cooperation you know and, and to say I'm not just pulling this out of a hat this is actually being demonstrated in, in measured ways yeah well this next question is one that you get often, but I also think is an important one. How did your research and writing impact your sense of hope or hopelessness uh, for the future of humanity? Yeah. Yeah, and, and I do get the question a lot. And it, it's, it's a challenge to, to not fall into an automatic answer and to be honest about the way in which my own attitude fluctuates. Um, I 
will often answer the question, do you have hope, with the question, hope for what? And a lot of times, people don't realize it, but the concealed term is, do you have hope that we're going to get out of this alive with all our stuff, you know? <laughs> Intact. <laughs> and I do not have hope for that. And I don't think that's a healthy thing to hope for, right? Uh, and in, in fact, it's part of, it's part of the challenge of, of robust climate action thinking, too. I mean, we had a problem long before we went over the 350 parts per million threshold you know, for emissions, for, for CO2. And we would continue to have a problem if tomorrow all our energy sources went to renewable and we were no longer putting CO2 into the atmosphere. The problem is we don't live here on the world, in, in the living world. We don't think the world is alive, right? Do I have hope that we can realize that? I do. But the question is, how much catastrophe is it going to take for us to come to that realization? And will we be able to endure in some form with that knowledge intact beyond that catastrophe? And to me, I do go back to this idea that transformation in consciousness has been demonstrated so many times throughout history as something that can happen rapidly since the, the, the form of consciousness that thinks, that, that strives for autonomy and strives for mastery and strives for control is relatively recent in its origin, I think it can come apart fairly quickly too. Right? And the interesting thing is, if we can, if we can make that transformation in ourselves and model it for other people, we deal with despair, right? Because no matter what the outcome of our other actions, once we find that consciousness of connectivity, of kinship, of interbeing, you know, what Buddhists call interbeing, whatever world we go into, that consciousness will be our organizing principle and our protection. It will, it will make it easier for us to find the kinship and love and durability and, and interdependence that we will need to confront whatever challenges the future brings. Right? Well, Counterintuitively, you believe that regardless of what we do do, whether we do make this transformation or not, that there is some hope for trees. Oh my goodness, yeah. I mean, yeah, if you're, if you're defining terms, I mean, we, we're the upstarts here, right? We've been around for a couple hundred thousand years at most. Trees have been around for 400 million years, 350, 380 million years. So roughly 2,000 times longer than anatomically modern humans. They've, they've survived multiple mass extinctions, right? The question is, how do we make friends with them? How do we get on their side? How do we figure out to, be, you know, to, to, to become part of that endeavor? Right? 
Is there any lifestyle change or changes you've made since writing the book? <laughs> yeah. Um, so so I'll, I'll, I'll do the trivial one first. It's something that you almost don't even have to say in Portland. But, you know, when, when, when people in other places say, what can I do, you know, this is a very simple and very easy one, which is stop eating meat, right? Um, because, because, you know, for so many reasons. Um, I mean, if you're, if you're talking about uh, rehabilitating land, you know, if you're talking about uh, a crazed system of of distribution of, of of food and you know if you're talking about 13 calories to one you know for that that's a that's a luxury and it it's it, it's getting so easy not to do right as as we mature and as as glorious possibilities you know cultural and and technical you know present themselves um, so that that was a small one for me something that I probably in the back of my head realized, you know, was easy and attainable and right, but just didn't do. You know, I think once you start taking, you know, taking plants seriously as the, as the mainstay of, of civilization, it, it's, it's not a deprivation anymore. I mean, that's the interesting thing. If, if to the degree that we can, we can go from in order to in order to be safe and meaningful and secure, I need more, and I need you know I need to to to, to acquire, and that's all I have by way of enriching my life, which you know as we know is actually produces as much anxiety as it does you know gratification and protection. You know once you shift over to that other sense of you know it's actually rewarding and satisfying to see. Uh, my own interests in the interests of other things, you know, a, a kinship sort of model. And it's like, it's not actually giving things up. It's in, the, in the same way that it's a great pleasure to give to a charity and it makes you feel good, right? But more specifically, the book changed my daily life in this regard. When I was researching it, I kept reading about how, how uh, few and far between the patches of old growth were. And I kept reading that if you wanted to see what, a, what an eastern broadleaf deciduous old growth forest looked like, a great place to go was Smoky Mountains, uh, you know, on the Tennessee-North Carolina border, because the largest contiguous remaining patches of old growth in the east are there. And so just as a research trip, I went to the Smokies uh, while, while writing the book. And, you know, as I walked up, you can get the same experience in the Cascades. You know, as you walk up through the, the, the regrowth forest into the old growth, you don't have to be tree literate at all. You just cross that threshold, and all of a sudden, it's, it looks different, it smells different, it sounds different. You're just in a different world. And, I, you know, when I walked up in there, I thought, wait a minute. I'm seeing a healthy functioning forest for the first time. I'm seeing my eastern forests the way that they were. You know, the, the, the legacy, the patrimony of this, of, of this land. And I was so haunted by that. And, and so, uh, you know, the, the sense of pleasure was so visceral that nine months later I was still thinking about it. And I bought a house and I moved there and I've been living there ever since. 
you know. And and so that's my day now to to have that, you know. Uh, my day used to be if I don't write a thousand words, I I feel guilty. Now my day is if I don't go up for three or four miles, it's a wasted day, you know. And and the words will come later. Fortunately, well, an interesting thing, as a lot of you probably know this, when you're walking, you get more ideas than any other 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 possible you know relation to the to the to the body to the world yeah that's a good segue to the next question what is your writing practice how much time do you give to reading versus writing yeah how does this ratio shift by day week season and year and what else do you <laughs> Which is actually a profound question. I and love, the, and I, the last one, oh, what, what else do you consider an integral part of your creative process other than reading and writing? Yeah, oh boy, there's, there's a, a lot of good stuff there. Um, so where to start? Um, so, so now, as I say, my relationship uh, to word production is very different. Often the movement will come first and the meditation will come first. And, and I don't have that... You know, the, the way that I created a lot of the other 11 books was to lie in bed and force my concentration until that, the, the wheels would start to turn, right? And you can, you can get a lot done that way. I mean, I wrote 11 books that way. Um, but, you know, the, the, this other way of saying, you know, be out there, uh, smell the smells, hear the sounds, and see what happens... It's so much more joyous. I mean, it's, it's so, you know, for me, it's, it's such a pure pleasure. Um, I love the aspect, the, 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 the thoughtfulness that went into the question that would say, how does it change by the season? Because it does now, you know. And, and part of this human exceptionalist, you know, mastery model is we should have, we should have a life that's independent of weather and, and season and place, you know. I, I, traveling here, I, I saw a, um, a big billboard, uh, and, the, and, and it was people frolicking in the surf, in the sun and the surf, and the, and the, the caption was, um, this fall, choose spring. And it was an advertisement for flying to Sydney or Wellington. You know, it's like, why, why restrict yourself to the to the northern hemisphere when the whole world, you know, when you can always have what you want at any time, you know? And I just thought, well, the first thing it made me thought of was beloved quote from Thoreau from his notebooks where he says, um, uh, uh, "Breathe the air, drink the drink." taste the fruits, live in each season as it passes, resign yourself to the influence of the earth. So that's what we have to learn how to do. We have to resign ourselves to the influence of the earth and make that not a sacrifice, but a delight. And, and to me, it's like when the days are shorter, they're shorter. And when it gets dark, I don't have to work until the same hour that I work when the days are long. <laughs> it, look, you know, we're animals. You know, we should... You, there, there, there should be some pleasure in saying, "I'm on, I'm on the, the planet's time." Yeah. You know? One way to connect these last three questions: how the book changed your lifestyle. You, you moved across the country to a beloved, 
forest, that forest has changed your writing practice. And then the question of hope, there's a story behind that forest being saved by just a couple individuals, a Japanese photographer yeah. and a um, George recovering alcoholic writer. Horace Kephart. Yeah. How do you know this stuff? <laughs> That's wonderful. T tell us a little bit about the actions. Well, you've already done so. <laughs> <laughs> of two people who, yeah. who in a way, are, are partially instrumentally responsible for you being able to have this writing practice in this forest. Yeah, yeah. So, so when Roosevelt was elected in the in the in the height of the depression, you know, um, he was a great forester, by the way. And you know, for for many years, he would put that as his employment on his tax returns. He'd say forester, you know, Franklin Roosevelt forester employment. Um, and he, he planted this huge green belt up in New York. So, so he, he was partial to the idea of finding um, a great eastern park to match the western parks. So, you know, Yellowstone goes way back into the, you know, what was like 1872 or something. Um, and then, of course, Yosemite was early on, too. And, and, and these parks had, had produced this huge desire on the part of people to to see the, the 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 last holdouts for you know for for everything that was being lost and and roosevelt said you know we could do this for the east you know for these huge population centers that don't have a big park where can we go and people brought them people brought to washington Massa's photographs and other people's photographs too, and the writings of Kephart about this part of the world that was rapidly being lost, year by year, was being completely clear cut. And these two, the, the, the desire to save the last big chunks of eastern old growth forest, the desire to, to find a park that could be a, a working class park for urbanized Easterners, and to find a, a possible engine for economic, in the pure sense of the word, uh, betterment. Uh, you, you all know about the, the CCC and the way that you know the, these, you know, the creation of the parks became a great public jobs program. You know, um, all these came together in this magnificent salvage project. About a quarter of the Smokies was never cut. So out of the 500,000 acres of the park, 120,000, uh, you know, still are, are, are old growth. Uh, by the way, in, in the 18, late 19th century, like 1890s, the whole Cascades was going to be set-aside land. The entire range was going to be set-aside land, you know. So... It, it's it's important to remember that you know that 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 there are no historical inevitabilities, and and these are all contingencies. And and what's what's amazing is you go to the Smokies, twelve million people a year come to this park because they're starved, because we are we we feel wretchedly alone, you know, and and traumatized somehow. And you can be in a traffic jam a mile and a half long because there's a, a mother bear and her two cubs that people just want to stand and look at. You know, we should be making more of these things. Instead, 
the White House has just announced that they'd like to open the Tongass to cutting. Holy smokes, what in the world? I mean, to, to think that, they're, that, that that would be economically profitable. I mean, they, they, you couldn't, the, the, the Smokies brings in a billion dollars a year from people who just want to see what a forest looks like. You couldn't take that out in, I don't know how many cycles of cutting. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're really talking about what makes economic sense, yeah, I mean, I don't know what else to say about that. But, you know, when you, when you think of what's happened in the last three years, I mean, basically 60 years of, of bipartisan, difficult-to-achieve environmental le- legislation has been rolled back in so many ways, you know, massive amounts of public land have, have been, you know, uh, open to extraction. Yeah, it's a, it's a grim, grim time. And I'll just say it once again, whatever your temperament is, there's a way of engaging. You don't necessarily have to, you know, be locked down. Those two people that we yeah. were talking about were artists. That's right. They were artists. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe this is a good final question, and I'm going to add a little bit on to it, but someone heard over the radio you alluding to your next new project, and I know that you've talked about how when you finish a project, after you've done all this immersion, you are often or always have been met with the desire to find the next new thing that you want to immerse yourself in. But that after you wrote the overstory, you didn't have that feeling that you felt like you wanted to dwell and and indwell and return to this material. So I, I also am very curious <laughs> what what yeah. that looks like because it's a it's a new th- it sounds like it's a new thing for you as well. You know, I I don't I don't mean this to sound dramatic, but I I feel as if I've spent. 40 years and a dozen books to come up with something that's durable, you know, that, that just seems right to me. And it seems like, like a story that, that, that can be told again and again. And, you know, when I was working on this book and, and friends and family would say, are you, are you underway with the project? I'd say yes. And they'd say, what, what's it about? And I'd say trees. You know, and and the eyebrow would go up, and you know the, that look of you know. I hope you know what you're doing, and or 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 they'd say, "Oh, you're writing a nonfiction book." You know, no, I'm writing a novel about trees, and and they would think this. I mean, it would sound very very strange to people, and and it's still not a book that's that that synopsizes very easily, you know, when you, when you try to tell a person what this book is about, you know. But the odd thing for me is somewhere along those years, I went from thinking, maybe they're right, this is a weird idea, to thinking, why aren't all contemporary liter- literary works about trees? <laughs> <laughs> They should be in every literary fiction. <laughs> so, anyway, they're, they're more than window dressing. They've made us who we are, you know, even as, as we've shaped them. You know? and, and that's a story. There are infinite ways of telling it. And I hope to try a couple more before, before I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks.
thank you for the overstory, and thank you for being here in Oregon. Thank you, David. Marvelous. Thank you, Portland. Yeah. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. For the bonus audio archive, Richard contributes a reading of a W.S. Merwin poem about trees, joining readings from everyone from Alice Oswald to Jory Graham to Forrest Gander. The bonus audio is only one of many possible gifts and rewards of joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Everything from rare collectibles from past guests to the Tin House Early Readership subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. In addition, every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests, and every listener supporter receives the supplemental resources with each conversation. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Beth Steidel in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jay Nichelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. 